Welcome to the podcast from Central Congregational Church. Thank you for joining today. I hope this message from our church this week is grounding and inspiring, challenging and encouraging, and a helpful reminder that you are loved by God and called to great things. Would you pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer, so that whether it's because of me or even in spite of me, it would still be your word that is faithfully proclaimed in your name that is glorified. Amen. Um, The last time I was here in Rhode Island, uh, before coming in October, to do that sort of weird interview sermon day, if you remember that, uh, was in the fall of 2021 after my grandfather died. Um, Susanna and I came up from Georgia to be both a part of the service, but also a part of cleaning out his apartment uh, right here in town. And I remember as a part of preparing for that service, I was invited to participate in any way I wanted to, uh, which is a difficult spot, if I'm being honest, because what often happens when you're a pastor in a family is you start to be asked to play a certain role in any sort of gathering. Uh, with my in-laws, it means that I pray, I pray the prayer of blessing at a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, With my grandfather's service, there was an assumption that I might want to offer a eulogy or a sermon or something to participate in the service. And the reality is, as you might guess, I just wanted to be a grieving grandchild. That was the role that I wanted to play. And so when the pastor of Barrington Congregational Church reached out to me to ask how I'd like to participate, I kind of said, I don't really want want to, not because I don't want to participate, but because I wanted to sit next to my dad. Um, I wanted to hold the hand of my mom. I wanted to be just a normal person. So after some conversation, I agreed to do a scripted prayer as a part of a typical funeral liturgy. If you've been to a funeral, you're familiar with the way that the liturgy goes. And so I uh, was more than willing to do that. So as the funeral service started to come together, we heard that, you know, my grandfather, who was very active in the Masons, he wanted for the Masons to have a part of the ceremony as well, which is incredible. Um, And so we were told there would be a short ceremony by the Masons towards the beginning of the funeral service. Well, there was very little communication, either from the church or the Masons between one another. And for those of you who were there, you may remember that the Mason short ceremony was the totality of a funeral service. Um, It was beautiful. It was well done. um, And it would have been, I think, deeply meaningful for my grandfather. But it meant that in the middle of the this funeral liturgy, I was again thrust into a position where I was having to sort of make spur-of-the-moment decisions about what exactly I was going to do, because guess what? The prayer that had been scripted for me had already been said (laughs) by somebody else. 
And by the time the part of the service came up for me to participate, I um, pulled out a book that I had found in my grandfather's apartment that he held on to from high school, where he won a speech competition and he was gifted a leather-bound collection of some of the best poetry of the 19th and 20th century. And he had dog-eared, fortunately, thank you, John, uh, he had dog-eared a page of what I assume was his favorite poem, but it very well could have been his least favorite, I don't know. Um, But I replaced my prayer with uh, a poem by Robert Frost, which was wonderful and lovely, it was a good day. But as I've been preparing um, for today and what it means to settle into Providence and into a new community, I don't know why, but my grandfather has been on my mind a lot. Maybe it was just because that was the last time I was in town um, until coming back. But there's something about the way that the parts of ourselves don't always communicate fully. The way that we hold ourselves in some settings versus others, the way we have expectations in some settings versus others, it creates a sort of tension between us, right? We've all felt it. There are simple tensions, right? Like the tension for the, the ideals of justice and equity and that everybody should be given a, not just a fair chance, but that everyone should be uh, elevated to the same status, that all people should be equals. That is always held in tension with a competitive work environment where we're spending a lot of time and energy trying to prove that we're better than the person next to us or more qualified or more organized or whatever the case may be. The tension of being a follower of Christ, we're meant to live a a life of simplicity and submission, being under the mission of God, being held in tension with uh, the ideals of our political party that we also contribute finances and time to, right? There's a tension between the ideals of faithfulness and the realities of a life lived in a complicated society where we are in competition with one another more more often than we are in collaboration with one another. We're irritated with our neighbors more often than we're hopeful about their well-being. We're frustrated by the reality of the world more often than we're willing to get our hands really dirty to make compelling and interesting and lasting change. The ideals of justice and equity held in tension with the ideals of freedom. These things are all difficult to hold together. Which makes sense then if Jesus' story, especially in the Gospel of Mark, when it's all, the Gospel of Mark is all about this tension. Tension between the norms of society and the compelling vision of God's kingdom. Tension between what it means to live a faithful life and what it means to be beholden to a society that would crucify a leader of it. Tension between the world of empire and God's everlasting beloved kingdom. This is the tension that Mark draws to a forefront, and he does it from the very first page. When we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it isn't through a genealogy, it isn't through a birth narrative, it's really um, 
powerfully and prophetically about the way that he came from Nazareth, which was known for being a sort of backwaters part of the part of the world that no one was from there. He was a nobody from nowhere who goes not to the center of power, but instead to the wilderness to be baptized by, like, the weirdo in the woods, John the Baptist, who's, like, covered up in camel hair, eating honey and locusts. Like, he's a, he's a weird guy, not the one that you would go to for sage advice, right? Like, he's the guy you avoid on the street, drive around. So nobody from nowhere goes to the weirdo in the woods, and that's where his ministry starts. He's an adult by the time he goes to be baptized, and one commentator said it beautifully, that the difference between Jesus and every other unnamed nobody from nowhere that came to John the Baptist is that he wasn't baptized in the Jordan, he was baptized into the Jordan where his life was fully immersed in the absolute presence of God. And from being immersed absolutely in the presence of God, he begins to proclaim the kingdom. But where does he go? Further into the wilderness. To fight with beasts. Echoing language from the book of Daniel about the beasts the embodiment of all that's wrong in the world. Jesus goes further away from safety in order to battle all of the compulsions of human society that keep us alienated from one another. And when he returns again to build the kingdom of God, where does he go? Does he go to Jerusalem? No, he goes to the lakeshore to speak with fishermen in order to invite them in. Fishermen are really interesting. Are, is anybody familiar with the, uh, the context of fishing in the Bible? It's crazy. <laughs> so in Jeremiah 16, 16, if you want to read it, Jeremiah 16 is all about God's disappointment. The prophet Jeremiah is talking about God's disappointment with the kingdom of Israel at the time that had allowed their values to drift from the focus on God towards the um, enslavement of their own people, towards the misuse of funds, towards the all of the things, the trappings of life that are so easy for people who have some modicum of of power to pull more and more and more until they're using the power they have to lord over the people that they're responsible for caring for. Well, Jeremiah says, I am sending fishermen who will gather you with hooks. Whoa! And then Amos, another prophet, who's also kind of a nobody from nowhere, he writes about fishing, but he's talking about people who have gained wealth over the others of the world. And Amos talks about how God will send a fisherman to come and pull in 
to pull out all of the injustice, all of the wrongs, all of the uh, misuse of power out of the faithful. Being a fisher for men is not about, like, joyful evangelism. Being a fisher of men means that you're doing the dangerous work of casting a line out into troubled seas, a place that everyone in the ancient world knew contained dragons and beasts. Fishers of men means that you go to the depths, the darkest places of society to cast a line out in the hopes that you might catch some part of the evil of this world and rid the sea of it. What it means for these fishermen who've been fishing on the side of the lakeshore there to be gathered into God's story of being fishers of men is that they will be a part of changing everything. 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 The fishermen that Jesus calls are not some picturesque small uh, small business owners, which I've heard a lot of sermons about. They're people who are beholden to Rome. Um, I don't know, I learned this in my research for today, but um, around this time, every fish that was caught by any fisherman in the Middle East, that fish was a property of Caesar. And so any of your largest catch was owed to Caesar. And then whatever was left after you had met your quota for returning back to Rome, you might be able to sell, and that's what they would use to sort of hold their property and their space. These people were beholden to a power greater than them. In a political sense, they were beholden to the powers of Rome. And so when Jesus comes, he's not offering them a way to, he's not changing their vocation. He's not changing anything about their place in society. Jesus is going to a community of people that understands what it feels like to be under the heel of oppression and inviting them to take the center stage. Inviting them to join in creating an equitable society that's governed not by the sort of false peace of Rome, not governed by the pious but distant power of the kings of Israel who fell into the same traps, not governed by any of these systems and strategies of power, but instead maintained by the grace and love of an abundant God. So, I don't know why my grandfather's funeral has been in my mind so much. And I get that it doesn't really feel connected, but I think there's something about the way that I myself live my life in a bifurcated way sometimes. 
where like full confession and I had a great time but I was so I came home from a wonderful tour of the state house this week taking pictures of a really beautiful um uh, commendation on my being appointed here to the church and sent it to all my friends I was very proud of myself for my recognition of people from people until I sat with my sermon today and remembered that, like, the point is so much bigger than how much someone might cheer me on from any position of power or any position of lack thereof. I think parts of our lives end up being held in tension against one another and lest we maintain our focus on the presence of God through those relationships, we can be easily distracted by all the wrong things, to participate in all the wrong ways. And so I look forward to discerning with you what it means to be a church and the center of such a beautiful community, surrounded by centers of culture and intellect, prestige, I look forward to wrestling with that as we continue to discern the ways that God calls our church to live a fully integrated life where we can be fully awakened and alive to the presence of God and the Capitol building on Brown University and the banking system among all of the areas that are being rebuilt around here, museums and all these wonderful things that make Providence what it is. Maintaining God at its center, I believe we can see a just, beloved, good, sacred, sacred presence here, if you'll join me in it. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this message, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing it with your friends. If you do share it, be sure to tag us so that we can join in the conversation. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at centralchurch.us. We hope you have a great week, and we hope to see you back again next week.